Please pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for all the many, many uh, centuries that lie behind us. Centuries of you working with your people, uh, of you speaking and revealing yourself and your will to your people. Um, Lord, as we learn from that this morning, um, I pray that our hearts would be set on fire with love for you. I pray that we would be humble before your word. Um, and I pray that you would uh, instruct us in the way that we should go this morning. <clears throat> we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today is our fall launch, and we're going to begin a brand new sermon series focusing on the life of Moses. Between now and Christmas, we're going to go through um, the whole book of Exodus um, and focus on Moses, who he was. Um, and other than Jesus himself, it's hard to imagine anyone who's ever lived who's had more of an impact on our daily lives than Moses has. Do you believe that theft and murder are wrong? Thank Moses. Uh, do you enjoy not working all seven days of the week? Thank Moses. Do you believe in educating children and that even servants and foreigners should have rights? Then thank Moses. Do you believe that God can save people, that he's a speaking God who wants to make himself known, that he wants to dwell in the midst of his people? Then thank Moses. Do you understand how the world was created in the beginning, how it then fell into sin, how we ended up with different nations and languages, who Abraham was, and the mechanics of substitutionary atonement? Then thank Moses. Obviously, thank God first. Um, but the vehicle for all these gifts was the man, Moses. And it's hard to imagine what we would really understand about Jesus without the first witness of Moses. Moses has done a whole lot for us. So this fall, we're going to study his life, who he was, what he was like, what made him tick, what made him special, and what made him ordinary. Because through Moses, we learn even more about what God is like, who Jesus is, and what it looks like to be successful, even great disciples. Um, so today we're going to begin at the beginning uh, in Exodus chapter 1. Please turn there now at page 45 of the church Bibles. We're beginning in Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. So today we're just going to look at the circumstances of Moses' birth. In all the verses that we read today, uh, Moses himself didn't do anything, right, except cry. <laughs> um, th this part's all about how he came into the world, and that was special in itself. So I want to tell this part of the story through the eyes of the women who were there. Three sets of women in this story were brave and savvy and praiseworthy, and together they saved Moses so that Moses could save Israel. So first we have the Hebrew midwife, second Moses' own mother and sister, and third the daughter of Pharaoh. Together these women successfully undermined the Pharaoh in his scheme of death so that the chosen son would live. Uh, let's set this scene with a bit of historical background. So you remember from the end of Genesis that Jacob had 12 sons. And the second youngest son was Joseph. And Joseph, Andrew Lloyd Webber tells us, uh, he made himself obnoxious to his 10 older brothers um, by telling them all about his dreams where they bowed down and worshipped him. 
So the older sons clubbed together and they captured Joseph and they sold him as a slave to Ishmaelite traders. And they took him to Egypt and after a spell as a slave in Egypt and a spell in prison, Joseph got himself a reputation uh, for interpreting dreams. And that took him straight into Pharaoh's palace so that he could explain Pharaoh's dream about the coming famine. Pharaoh then put Joseph in charge of rescuing Egypt from the famine, and thus Joseph became the second most powerful man in the whole country. Later on, his father Jacob uh, and his 11 brothers came to Egypt to avoid starvation from the same famine, and they were reunited with Joseph and settled there. They settled in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years, and they grew from a clan of 70 people into a vast nation of hundreds of thousands. So it's at the end of that 400-year period that Exodus begins, and we pick up the story. After four centuries, a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. It says there in chapter 1, verse 8. And we should understand that this probably means there was a change of dynasty, a new house of pharaohs had come on the scene. And it was led by a guy who was ignorant of the nation's history, ignorant of the history of Israel in Egypt, and therefore he was fearful of these foreigners within his borders. So basically what we have in this guy is your standard nationalist and racist. Very recognizable today with all the increasingly nationalist leaders the world is producing. And this pharaoh thought he was very clever and very powerful. He says in verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. But what he does turns out to not be very shrewd. <laughs> it's not shrewd at all. Uh, and the scripture's verdict on this pharaoh in verse 8 is that he knows not. He's ignorant in contrast to the God of heaven who knows all things and who hears his people's cry. Uh, Pharaoh had a child extermination plan, and it was basically a bust, uh, because it was undermined by three sets of women. And this man who thought that he was in charge um, could do nothing in the end to thwart the continued growth of Israel into a great nation or to stop God's plans to rescue them in great power and glory. But we see here, as always, that God's plan for human history involved people. God worked um, hand in hand with people. It was completely reliant on, uh, on people. Um, and God executed his plans through the people that he called into his service. Here at the start of Exodus, those people are several very brave and very savvy women. So let's focus on the women who stood up to Pharaoh in these chapters. The first group we have is the Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Pua, those were their names. We meet them in chapter 1, verse 15. And we should pause right off the bat and know that we, we know their names, right? The Bible names them. Two humble midwives are recorded in the story of God in the best-selling book in history. Uh, and what was Pharaoh's name again? <laughs> we don't know. The most powerful ruler in the world at the time, and we don't know his name. Exodus deliberately leaves it out, and by some accident of history, scholars scratch their heads and argue and debate about which pharaoh this was. But the result is that this great man who literally thought he made the sun come up in the morning is just a donkey in this text. Not even worth naming. The ones to pay attention to are Shifra and Pua. 
Pharaoh's plan, his Hebrew birth control plan, was to employ midwives as exterminators. Midwives, those classic badasses with a penchant, <laughs> with a penchant for violence, right? And it doesn't seem like Pharaoh's plan here had any follow-through or accountability. No soldiers in the wings to see that the job got done, no, because the midwives just said no. They feared God and not the king, and rightly so, because God is fierce, and this king had no teeth. Um, Pharaoh realized that his orders weren't being followed, so he called Shifra and Pua back in to see him, and he asked them, why not? And the midwives had a brilliant answer in verse 19. You all laughed at it as it was read. Um, they said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. A likely story. Um, <clears throat> but what they've done here is they've been very clever. Uh, this word vigorous that they use comes from the same root as living creatures, the word that Genesis uses to describe the animals. So what they're kind of saying is the midwives are like wild animals. I mean, the, the Hebrew mothers are like wild animals. And what that did is it played right into Pharaoh's own bigoted stereotype of them anyway, right? They were milking his own small-mindedness to their advantage. So despite the fact that they've totally humiliated him and disobeyed him, he's pleased with their answer, and he lets them go. Mighty Pharaoh is disobeyed, undermined, outmaneuvered, and completely outclassed by this pair of midwives, and he doesn't even seem to realize it. This is frankly embarrassing, and God rewards Shifra and Pua in verses 20 and 21 in two ways, both personally by giving them families, and then also by giving them the credit in his eternal word for the continued flourishing of his people, because verse 20 says, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God shows here his approval of their civil disobedience to an unjust and ungodly law. And for this brief moment in the history of God's redemptive plan, Shifra and Pua take the spotlight. And the whole story hangs on their faithfulness, doesn't it? This so often happens in the story of God. One woman's or one man's faithfulness changes the whole course of history. What difference would it have made if Shifra and Pua had followed Pharaoh? He might not have had Moses at all. And what difference might your and my faithfulness make in our own day? We can never know until the full story is shown to us. But now let's look at the second pair of women, Moses' mother and sister. So at the end of chapter 1, uh, Pharaoh's next play is equally dumb. Um, the midwife plan, oh, that failed. So the next candidates to be the exterminators of Hebrew babies are... The people of Egypt. Yes, of course. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, remember that the Egyptian people had been living side by side with the Hebrew people for 400 years now. They'd never known it any other way. They'd been over for Thanksgiving dinner in each other's homes. They'd given their sons and daughters to each other in marriage. And suddenly this pharaoh was asking his own Egyptian people to murder the newborn children of their neighbors and friends. How likely is this order to be followed? It was enough to make Moses' mother afraid 
because she hid her son away in chapter 2, verse 2. But in reality, it's pretty hard to hide a baby when he's wailing his head off at 2 o'clock in the morning. Chances are that the whole neighborhood knew full well that Mrs. Moses had a baby boy. And everyone just kind of played dumb because none of them fancied the idea of drowning him in the river. They find it enormously unlikely that many Hebrew boys actually lost their lives to Pharaoh's edict. It was just so lame. The scriptures go on and on about how numerous the children of Abraham were, including taking a census of them after they leave Egypt and counting over 600,000 men. That's just the men, just the ones who should have been drowned. Maybe that's actually part of the reason they only list the men, because it's a great big up yours to the Pharaoh. Um, The huge population would not have been possible if it had taken any serious dent through drowned baby boys. So the edict really can't have lasted very long. In fact, given how sloppy the whole thing was, I find it entirely possible that not a single child died through it. But nevertheless, it was a scary time, and Moses' mom shows both courage and creativity in the midst of oppression. So she saw in chapter 2, verse 2, that her baby boy was a fine child. In Hebrew, that's tov, good, a good and pleasing child. Um, He was a perfect, flawless little boy, cute as a button. And that helped his chances. So she hid him as long as she could. And then she followed Pharaoh's order and she threw him in the river. (laughs) This was a clever bit of subterfuge, wasn't it? Uh, Since she did, in a sense, obey her Pharaoh, he never said anything about a boat. Um, She wove her son a basket out of bulrushes. That's the papyrus grass that grew in the marshy banks of the Nile. And it was great for making little boats. And she coated it with tar just like Noah had done to the ark. In fact, the Hebrew word for basket in verse 3 is the word tebar, which is the word that Genesis 6 uses for the ark in the whole Noah story. And this is the only other story in the Old Testament where that word is used. So it's a significant connection. When you imagine Moses being placed in the Nile River in his basket of bulrushes, think of Noah and imagine it as a miniature ark. Moses is being rescued from drowning in the same way Noah was, and it's kind of a baptism. It's a new life out of the jaws of death. All this goes to demonstrate that his mom was faithful to God and not the king, choosing good in the face of evil, and employing real shrewdness and creativity to get the better of him. Also, some pretty good engineering savvy. It's a lot harder to build a workable boat than you might think. Um, maybe we should go home and try to make a boat that could hold a baby in a river. Uh, I think many of us would have that baby tipped over in less than a few seconds. Boats are hard. Um, The process of saving the little boy uh, was overseen and completed by Moses' sister, Miriam. Verse 4 says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And Miriam has an important role to play, but it's woven in with the last woman we're going to focus on today, which was Pharaoh's daughter. So let's turn to her now. Verse 5 records that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. So I want you to notice here that the act of Pharaoh's daughter bathing was an act that required privacy, and that necessitated a sort of female sanctuary, The young women are standing guard beside the river while the princess bathes. 
So the men are literally pushed out of this situation, just as they are figuratively being pushed out of the plans of God at this stage. The natural compassion of Pharaoh's daughter toward a crying baby is going to overrule the fearful hatred of her own father toward that same child. He will not get his way. His daughter will have it her way. And the very thing Pharaoh feared and tried to kill is going to grow up in his own house. (laughs) See how completely weak and impotent this Pharaoh is? Undermined by brave and savvy women at every turn. Pharaoh's daughter knew at first sight that this baby was a Hebrew. She announces it in verse 6. This is one of the Hebrews' children. But that makes no difference to her sense of pity. And that reflects very well on her. Miriam, the sister, is very clever here, and she seizes on the opportunity. Notice that as a young girl, she can get within the cordon of the women standing guard. So she's perfectly and uniquely placed to act. She addresses the princess in verse 7 and asks, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And so it was that Moses' own mother then got paid by the palace to nurse her own son. (laughs) What a poke in the eye that is for Pharaoh. (laughs) So the conclusion of the birth narrative is in chapter 2, verse 10. Moses' mother nurses him for a while longer. And then when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And there's a lot going on in this verse. So this is the end of a section. It's the end of the section that describes Moses' birth. And we remember that in Hebrew narrative, the last word of a story tends to go to the winner, whoever was victorious in the situation, or to the person who was right uh, or had the most wisdom about the events that had taken place. We really learn what we should make of the story from the person at the end of it, the last sentence. And in this case, that person at the end is Pharaoh's daughter. Not only does this section end with her, but it ends by quoting her in direct speech. And the important characters in any Hebrew story are the ones who speak. Up uh, up to this point in the whole story of Exodus, the only man to have said a word is Pharaoh himself. God still hasn't spoken yet. But all the women in this story have spoken. The midwives, Shifra and Puah, Moses' mother and sister Miriam, and here we add Pharaoh's daughter. She speaks to conclude the whole birth narrative of Moses, and she speaks to name him Moses, because I drew him out of the water. She had all the cleverness that her father lacked. This is an elegant name. First, it was a common name from her Egyptian culture. The, uh, the meses sound meant to be born. And it was a particular popular word for uh, use of children of pharaohs. So you've probably heard of Ramesses. It's got that same sound in his name. There was also a pharaoh called Patmos. And there were several others that had that Mose sound in their name. It means to be born. And it was um, a particularly common for, uh, word to have in the names of uh, pharaohs. So uh, appropriate, Moses, perfectly appropriate for a child of Pharaoh's palace. But of course, secondly, the name works in Hebrew too, because Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for to draw out. And Pharaoh's daughter knew this because she gave that as her reason for the name in verse 10. She knew Hebrew. 
She's so much the antithesis of her bigoted father. She's sensitively giving this baby boy a name that preserves his ethnic identity uh, and the story of how he came to her. Moses was born a Hebrew, but he grew up for 40 years as an Egyptian. So he was, in that sense, biracial, and he straddled two cultures which were in fierce conflict. And that's going to continue to be a major theme of his life in the next few chapters. But here we see that dynamic encapsulated in his very name. Moses means one thing in Egyptian, one thing in Hebrew. Now, the name does a third thing, too, because it's also prophetic. We can't know if Pharaoh's daughter was conscious of this, but the name Moses means to draw out, and that was his life's mission. First, it was to draw out the people of Israel from Egypt, and secondly, which was the much longer, harder, and more painstaking task, to slowly draw out the culture of Egypt from Israel. So all in all, it was a fine name, and a wise and gracious woman who gave it to him. Five women undermined the Pharaoh of Egypt and saved one of the most important lives in human history. Moses was himself to be the savior of his people, but before he was a savior, Moses was saved. And while we might from this distance mock the Pharaoh for his clumsiness and toothless incompetence, I don't want to minimize how scary it would have been for to be any of those women uh, to stand against him, to cross him. It took real guts and the courage of their convictions that God was bigger and that God's way was better. So if any of you today are having to take a courageous stand for God, I encourage you to draw strength from these women who all crossed Pharaoh and survived. They won. And they discovered that Pharaoh was a toothless wolf whose bark was far worse than his bite. That, I think, we will find is so often the case with the enemies of God. So stand firm, saints, and fear God, because God is the one who is truly fearsome when you cross him. Stay with us in Exodus over the next few weeks, and you'll see Egypt learn that the hard way. But today, let's close with the question, where is Jesus in this text? We know that every story whispers his name, and Moses, as great as he was, is really only the warm-up act to the real star of the show, the real savior who is still to come, who is Jesus. The life of Moses starts pointing to Jesus right from the beginning. Moses was born to the people of Israel while they were being oppressed, and so was Jesus. Moses had a king seeking after his life when he was a baby, and so did Jesus. Moses had a faithful mother through, through courage and the help of God, was able to outwit that king, and Jesus had two parents who were able to do the same. Moses found his safety and security in the palace of the Pharaoh of Egypt, and Jesus also found safety in Egypt for two years hiding from King Herod. So both of them spent at least part of their childhood being raised in foreign cultures. We also see the same pattern at the beginning of Jesus' life of ignorant men and faithful women. Herod and his team of rabbis were left flat-footed and confounded when God started putting his plan into action. And compare Zechariah's angelic visit where he disbelieves and ends up mute with Mary's where she responds with courage and faith. Best of all, just like in the time of Moses, God sent a son to be a savior. 
in response to the groans of his people. And we see from both stories that God hears, God cares, and God is mighty to save. And that's the lesson of the lives of both Moses and Jesus that our hearts always need to hear. And so let's repeat it this morning. God is mighty to save. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're up against, God is mighty to save you. Do not think that his arm is too short to save. He waits only for the right time and maybe for the right person to execute his plans. But God hears you and he knows what's going on with you and he wants to be the one to get you out of it. And if God can beat Pharaoh and get Israel out of Egypt, if he can rescue baby Moses from a mighty king and rescue baby Jesus from the clutches of Herod, then he can save you too. He can deal with that bill you can't pay or that job you can't get or that problem you can't fix or that sickness you can't shake. He knows that we need a savior and he wants to be that savior. Our God is mighty to save. So go to him, ask him, and keep asking him, and wait for him. And in the meantime, you be faithful. Keep doing what is right, even if it's scary. Don't give up on God, and he won't ever give up on you. Amen.